Good day, good morning, good evening, Med Nation recipients and listeners. Episode two, guys, and welcome. Today, we'd like to introduce our special guest, Dr. Monica Singh. Dr. Monica Singh graduated from the City College in New York City from SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn, New York. That's where she obtained her medical degree. She uh, completed her medical, extensive medical training in ophthalmology there. She served as chief resident and was awarded distinction for excellence in ophthalmology in her final year of training. Folks, she's legit. She also is a comprehensive ophthalmologist with a special interest in the treatment of allergic and dry eye disease and the management of eyelid problems, guys. And she's skilled in performing eyelid procedures, cataract surgery, and glaucoma laser treatments. In her spare time, Dr. Singh loves being outdoors, gardening, and most importantly, hanging out with us here at Med Nation. So welcome, Dr. Singh. Thank you for having me, Dr. Farnan. Dr. Singh, we are excited to have you on. Dr. Farnan has done an incredible job introducing you. Uh, give us some background. So uh, as far as ophthalmology goes, you know, we, we don't really think of the eye being as a very complicated organ. We often take it for granted in terms of what we need to do about it. Currently, I'm actually working for the first time as a locum tenens physician, and I'm providing care in an area of New Hampshire called the Manadnack area. It's a community hospital, and it's largely a older geriatric population, very active adults as well. And a lot of folks come in for routine eye care. And as you know, during the pandemic, ophthalmology was one of those fields that initially had to shut down for a little bit. And as patients started coming back, to get eye exams. Um, it was one of those fields that, where we had to be very cautious in particular with being careful, seeing the patients and using uh, techniques to provide barriers. You know, as far as like a slit lamp, our exam is done with the machine known as a slit lamp, which is a microscope actually, which allows us to see into the eyes. One of the things I've seen a lot is glare. When we have glare, if it's significant and that can, can actually decrease person's visual acuity, the, Perfect vision is known as 2020. Everybody knows about that. And so we see and treat a multitude of things. Um, and, and there's a large population that has glaucoma. Um, and the thing that you know most people don't know about glaucoma is that it's a very multifactorial disease. You know, it's not just about high eye pressure. It can be various things. It's technically what we call an optic neuropathy. Uh, meaning it's a disease of the optic nerve, which affects the axons of the optic nerve. And there's a whole host of them that can be seen in various populations. There's a type that runs in uh, color populations. There's a type that is more common in patients who have Northern European uh, ancestry. So we screen for all these things and we check for cataracts. We also uh, measure for glasses, try to you know optimize vision. As ophthalmologists, at the end of the day, that is our goal. I was trained as a comprehensive ophthalmologist. I did cataract surgery for many years. And as I moved through my career and with my family, I did end up switching to something called um, medical ophthalmology, which is kind of a hybrid field in the sense that I also do in-office procedures, but at this time I've taken a little bit of, of a break from cataract surgery. So not going into the operating room for uh, full surgical procedures, but I try to do anything and everything that can be done in the office. And one of the things I also wanted to stress about ophthalmology is that it's actually subdivided into several other fields. Um, there's something called oculoplastics, and those doctors are further trained via fellowship, uh, either one or two years, depending on what 
type of training they have in um, about the eyelids and the lacrimal drainage system and what we call the orbit because the eye actually sits in, um, it's surrounded by seven bones, which we collectively call the orbit. And glaucoma is its own field that can be subspecialized within uh, pediatric ophthalmology is another field, neuro-ophthalmology, um, which is a hybrid of uh, neurology and ophthalmology. And then there's also um, retina. Um, and the retina is very important in terms of diabetic retinopathy, age-related macular degeneration, and so many other um, diseases that can affect the retina. Uh, and then there's also uveitis, which is a field that has a lot of medicine in it and a lot of you know vasculitides that can affect the eyes and the blood vessels and autoimmune conditions. So physicians who get further training with fellowship in uveitis, they are uveitis specialists. So there's a lot to the eye. Yeah, it's very thorough, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it seems very thorough. It seems really interesting. So Dr. Singh, question for you. As podiatrists, we, we have a special place in our hearts. The majority of our population are diabetic patients. Tell me, what is the frequency that a diabetic patient needs to see an ophthalmologist for exams and such? Could you elaborate on that? So once a year is the bare minimum. And I'm very happy to hear, um, you know, that you asked me this question. So, uh, you know, I want to differentiate a little bit between type 1 and type 2 diabetics. Now, traditionally, type 1 diabetics who were the insulin dependent and type 2 were the non-insulin dependent Type 1 diabetics, generally, they don't have what we call diabetic retinopathy, uh, at least not in the first five years following their official diagnosis. However, when you, when you diagnose somebody with type 2 diabetes, generally, they've actually had the diabetes for a little bit. Um, even though I know we're more stringent now and primary care physicians that I've worked with are getting stricter and stricter with their guidelines, and now there's this whole you know, pre-diabetes diagnosis. But once you, you know, somebody is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, they really should have an eye exam done as soon as possible. And uh, what we look for as ophthalmologists is diabetic retinopathy. If it's there, it's either mild, moderate, or severe. And then we grade it according to that. And depending on what we see, we'll either see them back in a year or we'll bring them back nine, six, or three months respectively uh, just to sort of see how they go. And one of the things I also want to add here, since we're talking about diabetic retinopathy, is that pregnant women, when they are gestational diabetics, they're technically supposed to get an eye exam. Now, a lot of people don't. Um, you know, in residence, we were a little sneaky sometimes and say like, well, I have to dilate you, but I'm not so sure about this dilating job, you know, with you as a pregnant woman. But now we've got technology totally being honest here. We've got um, some machines that are so great at taking photos. All you need to do is sit your patient down at a machine and get a, a photo of what we call the fundus, which is a fancy term for uh, their retina. And that'll basically document how their retina looked that one day so that you can follow it. Because during pregnancy, so many things are subject to change with hormones. Um, and so... It's, um, we do see a lot of uh, patients with diabetes um, and diabetic retinopathy. It's, um, you know, it's treatment has really uh, shifted in the last decade from lasers to actually what we call intraocular injections. We, um, retina specialists and some general ophthalmologists will inject the eye with what we call anti-VEGF inhibitors if there is proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which means that there's new blood vessels and potentially scar tissue growing in the retina. 
uh, and we don't want that. Thank you so much for all that detailed answer. Let's talk about Lasix. What are the indications and do you recommend for diabetics to have this procedure done? So LASIK is a, um, it's a refractive procedure. There's a number of refractive procedures uh, for the cornea. Um, and it really evolved some time in the 1970s in the United States. It's a procedure that developed after there was a more popular procedure called PRK at one time. And the idea is that these procedures are generally geared toward patients who are nearsight- nearsighted, uh, what we call myopia and or with astigmatism. Astigmatism refers to the curvature of the cornea, um, you know, and how somebody's prescription is and, and how the cornea's uh, map is, if you will, what we, uh, what we call like a cor- corneal topography. And, um, you know, in diabetics, I would say it ultimately comes down to their evaluation. If they're stable, your prescription, your eyeglass prescription has to be stable for, I believe, six months or so at the very minimum. And there's other indications for it. But generally, the idea is you want to be eyeglass independent, or at least at least have some time that you're eyeglass independent. There are certain contraindications to LASIK, um, something called Fuchs corneal endothelial dystrophy, basically means that um, one of the layers of the cornea, the endothelium, it's irregular. Uh, there's also a disease called keratoconus, where you have a completely irregularly shaped cornea. I mean, there's several contraindications to LASIK. But in general, if there isn't a contraindication after somebody gets evaluated for LASIK at their pre-op and they're in good general health, um, they usually can have it. But one thing I want to stress is it's generally for people who are mid-ranged myopia, like up until about minus six of prescription uh, people who have higher prescription than that, generally, we tell them to potentially consider one of the other re- refractive procedures, like the one I just mentioned, PRK. Um, now, I'm not cornea subspecialty trained, but that's kind of the, the general thing when I have a patient who expressed some interest and they've tried contact lenses already and they think, you know, I want to just get evaluated. I'm sick of putting contacts and I do go and get a LASIK evaluation. In fact, my neighbor just got LASIK this week uh, and she's in her mid thirties and she just asked herself why she didn't get it done sooner. So she's have, she has 2015 vision now. So there are some great, um, there are some great risk outcomes. And one of the things I actually want to mention is during the pandemic, a lot of people who wear eyeglasses have this issue with um, fogging. So there has been a trend, uh, you know, another uptick in LASIK. LASIK is kind of seeing a little bit of a revival. It had been kind of quiet in terms of how often it was being performed. Um, and it is uh, on the uptick. Um, one of the other things as an ophthalmologist not related to LASIK is that with the, all the mask wearing and everything, we've seen um, a little bit of an epidemic of uh, styes and chalasia and hordeola and all these little lid lumps and bumps just because of the way your, your, your breath flows. Well, I mean, that's, and I agree with you. I think, you know, that was one of the main, and, and I've seen it around with physicians and, and uh, mid-levels around the hospital, like you said, in terms of the, the uprise and fogging coming from wearing masks. I mean, I can see where that, that is made kind of re- revived or uplifted. I have a personal question for you, actually. So my wife literally has 
terrible vision. And I think she'd kill me if, if I didn't ask. I mean, her vision is so bad, and I couldn't even give you the numbers. I mean, they're terrible. She has to, out of one of her eyes, it's like a negative value, and the other eye is a very low value, and she has to wear like these particular contacts. What do you recommend for those patients that have such horrible vision, you know, well, in terms of that aren't good candidates likely for LASIK, or maybe they are. So can, can you uh, it, answer that? It sounds, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm speaking from a point of conjecture here, but it sounds like she's got like what I would call a, a natural monovision. Yes. So one eye she might be using for distance, and the other one, I don't know, She, you seem a lot younger than us older people, but um, she might not be what we call presbyopic yet in terms of like having trouble reading small fine print just yet but it sounds like one of the other eye the one with the lower number uh is the one that she's using for uh distance and the one with the stronger number where it's like a very high minus number she's using for reading if she's been like that her whole life she is probably used to that you know i've had people who like that um and generally they don't end up signing up for a refractive procedure now everyone is different but when they end up having uh, mature cataracts some it's uh, at that point they can change it and tell the doctor like listen I want to be perfect at distance or they can say that um, they want to, you know, when cataract surgery is done, there's so many different types of uh, lenses that can go into the eye. When you take the natural lens out, uh, we could probably talk about that someday is that, um, you know, you can have a lens put into the eye that will have you see great for, um, you know, distance and intermediate and pretty decent at near. It all depends on, what the patient's looking for. Um, but I guess that's something I, I, I think I'd have to call her, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so Monica, mm -hmm. I want to know why you chose ophthalmology. That's a very good question. I, um, so my mom told me when I was young, I had to become a physician. I'll admit that to you as a second generation Indian American. It was sort of like, you've got to do this. I couldn't do it, and you must. But I want to be a doctor, medical, a lawyer, or or an engineer, huh? Engineer, right? Yeah, <laughs> pick one of the three. <laughs> but um, I did get into a combined degree program outside of high school, and when I went there, um, I still wasn't really sure, and I presumed that I would just do internal medicine. I had some, and in fact, I actually didn't like eye doctors at all because when I failed my vision screening in elementary school. Um, it was a big deal. And I remember the envelope that went home to, to my parents, you know, I was like to the parents of Monica Singh, um, you know, she, your award failed the vision exam today. And it was like, oh, great. Now what else can I get in trouble for? But um, I had such interesting um, ophthalmologic uh, um, cases as a medical student, even when I was doing my uh, internal medicine, like rotation as a med student. And I met some ophthalmologists who, you know, they, everyone wants to take you under their wing in med school and, and sell you their field, you know, so to speak. Um, it was a hybrid of medicine and surgery. So you actually got to do stuff instead of just round. Um, and there's nothing wrong with rounding. It just, I didn't foresee, I didn't want to do that day in and day out. I, I wanted something that had some kind of procedures. And the ophthalmology residents that I first met at uh, Kings County Hospital, where, uh, you know, SUNY Downstate's right across the street is one of the hospitals we work with. You know, they really sold the field. You know, I have a comment, actually. So ophthalmology is super cool. So I, I remember a story, and I, I can see why you chose ophthalmology. I remember a story in residency. Where I was a, a resident, of course, in podiatry on my anesthesia rotation. 
intubating mm -hmm. folks and I would hang out with the ophthalmology folks and the attendings and the residents because I thought it was so cool. You guys would strap the eyes open and then you mm -hmm. shots in the eyes. And I used to be like, I don't, I don't know which is worse, shots in the toes or shots in the eyes. That, that leads me to ask you, do you miss the operating room at all? I, I, I do miss it a little bit. Um, you know, when I recently visited the local hospital that I was going to start working with one of the ophthalmologists here and he took me to the OR and it, it did bring back some very, very sweet memories. I think, um, I'm not done there yet. It's just, um, just waiting for my toddler to get a little older and sort of just get, uh, a couple of things squared away. Uh, and I, I, I do foresee myself doing probably a mission, uh, and then rehabbing my surgical skills. I'm probably going back in. There's actually a shortage of ophthalmologists at this point. And COVID has actually hastened the retirement of some some of the senior ophthalmologists who were operating, but who just thought that, you know, with the pandemic and everything, it's better to go out while you're on top. Because it, it, it there has been just so much volume of patients. Uh, and it's kind of sad because a lot of the offices I know of, they have like a three-month wait so that leads us to believe the next question being trend of hipster blue light glasses. Do they really work? All right. So I, I hate to I hate to break it to you. Um, <laughs> the American Academy of Ophthalmology, of which I am a member, and they are the you know the organization that all of us ophthalmologists join and do our CME with, and all of that. Um, there's no scientific evidence that. Um, blue light blocking glasses help you in in terms of preventing eye disease um now i have spoken to some of my optometry buddies in terms of of course you know with marketing and with glasses um and purchasing there's always this you know like should we add it as a feature there is a link technically speaking, between better sleep and limiting blue lights. I've done a lot of research with sleep during med school and as a resident in terms of, you know, what are those things that can help you uh, sleep better at night? And I'm all, I could also say I'm a little bit of a patient because sometimes I don't sleep so well at night. But, you know, if it's, if it's coming from the point of view of wanting to sleep better, I mean, we all know that the main culprit there is the fact that we're so addicted to our screens. In fact, a lot of people would recommend that you not even have your phone in your bedroom. And I know some physicians who do this. They don't have their bedroom and uh, they don't have their uh, phone in their bedroom at night. If they're on call, they go old school pagers. It's the blue light that comes from the screens that will interfere with the secretion of melatonin from the suprachiasmatic nucleus at night, which is generally sunset-ish, dinnertime-ish. So there are places that will market blue light blocking glasses, you know, with the idea of like, well, you'll sleep better or it'll help eye fatigue. But there, you know, there's been one study done, I believe, by the American Academy of Ophthalmology and it didn't find anything that was significant. So I don't advocate for it at this time. In fact, the glasses I'm wearing right now don't have blue blocking. I think limiting screen time before bedtime, you know, two hours before bedtime and not using your right. phone in the middle of the night. I think that helps, you know, with yes. optimizing your sleep for sure. Or just minimizing screen time in life altogether. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think I think this generation is so involved and so infatuated with screen time, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, and what have you. I mean, not being present, I think, for overall generalized health purposes, I mean, is is, is knocking off our generation early. 
Well, as we wrap up, Dr. Farnan, do you yeah. have anything to say? Yeah. So, no, we, we appreciate, you know, information and, and all the great time that we had with you, Dr. Singh. I think it's been amazing. You're an incredible doctor, an incredible human, an incredible female physician, a beautiful, powerful female physician, as we like to say. Um, and you are part of that clan. And we appreciate you. Again, we'd love to have you li likely in the, in the future if you'd be interested in, in, in being a part of the podcast again. Of course. And thank you very much for having uh, me on for your second uh, podcast. I'm very honored and I'm very happy um, to do this. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about ophthalmology anytime. Uh, I'll have to tell you some stories about how I check people's eyes um, on the side all the time. Uh, side consults, you talk about it, even at parties. Uh, I've treated a corneal ulcer at a party, at a family party once. Uh, so it's, I do uh, toenails at parties, yeah. so it's good. We're, we're one and the same person. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kenny, do you have an ophthalmology pun that you can share before you leave? I mean, right now, I would just say all eyes on you, but I, let me sleep on that. I do like punning. Yeah. <laughs> we have puns for days at Med Nation here, so... Very funny. That'll have to be my tagline. <laughs> All eyes on you. I like um, it. I like it. Yeah. So with that said, we're going to end our second episode. Thank you again, Monica, for being you. a part of it. Thank you guys for listening. Like, comment, subscribe, please. And please, we'd love to hear from you know our subscribers and folks around the country. So if you're listening, if you have questions for Dr. Singh or us, we're here for you. So please continue to listen and looking forward to next week. Thank you, guys. Mm -hmm.